Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today we will be speaking with John C. Marshall, MD, FRCSC, FACS. Dr. Marshall is a plenary speaker at the 2017 46th Critical Care Congress in Honolulu, Hawaii, speaking on building global collaboration in acute care research. Dr. Marshall is a professor of surgery at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Dr. Marshall. Thanks very much. The the topic we're supposed to discuss is building global collaboration in acute care research. Before we actually start discussing that, you you obviously have an extensive research background. So maybe we could put everything in context and have you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your experiences. Uh, sure. Um, so I did my uh, training, clinical training, in the uh, 1980s, and uh, when I finished that, I uh, spent three years in Montreal doing a research uh, fellowship, which was combined uh, clinical research and basic research. And so I've kind of uh, stuck with that kind of diffuse schizoid Uh, research interest, and I currently split my time between doing some basic research, which focuses on the cellular interface between uh, inflammation and cell death and the cellular mechanisms that regulate neutrophils uh, during inflammation, but also on clinical research, which has uh, evolved from an interest in sepsis to now probably as much or more an interest in how clinical research is done and what the possibilities are as we uh, collaborate in research that is driven by uh, investigators. So that work probably comes out. It's interesting how one uh, acquires uh, research knowledge. I suppose it's very much uh, like acquiring clinical skills. Uh, Most of what you learn, you learn by doing. And shortly after uh, I finished, I became involved with, as one of the founding members of the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. And I think that organization uh, has shaped my uh, thinking uh, in clinical research really quite profoundly, as it has the perspectives of everybody else who's been involved with that particular group. That sounds like a very interesting career arc. Was there a certain point where you made a conscious decision to spread out your research uh, and start collaborating with others, or was that more of an organic process? I think it was more of an organic process, particularly on the uh, clinical side. One of the things I think One of the myths I kind of grew up with was the myth that clinical research is done by genii, uh, smart people uh, who are functioning on their own and who come up with ideas that are unique and follow them through and transform the way we think about things. What I've come to realize through the work we do in the trials group and elsewhere is that clinical research is fundamentally a human interaction. Uh, It is intimately interrelated with how we care for patients, and it of necessity involves working with other people on questions that we're all asking and all thinking about. And in many ways, uh, you know, I have the luxury of being able to think uh, out-of-the-box thoughts on my basic research side, but the clinical side really does embrace the commonality of uh, colleagues uh, in Canada and around the world, the commonality of the questions that we ask and the things that keep us awake at night wondering if we might be able to do better. How have these research interests 
evolved independently or co-evolved with your clinical interests as a physician? Well, my clinical interests have always been in uh, the problem of multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, the problem of sepsis, and so they have gone hand in hand uh, because it is apparent that to understand a complex problem like that, uh, first of all, one needs data, one needs to study things and needs to study them in depth and as much as possible trying to disavow oneself of pre-suppositions uh, of what things are supposed to be like. But equally, you need a lot of interaction in studying those things because you need other smart people to kind of think about things and challenge you and hone your way of uh, looking at the world. So my interests have been much more in that area of uh, organ failure, nosocomial infection, but they tie in very nicely with colleagues who have interests that extend from understanding education to understanding the structure of intensive care to understanding how to prevent complications in the ICU. So there's a a tremendous kind of commonality, uh, and the commonality arises from wanting to understand something as fully as possible so that you can really milk the maximum uh, value out of that understanding. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about the history of the Canadian Critical Care Research Consortium. It sounds like you were... Uh, one of the founders, so maybe you yeah, so there was, best. It was actually the, the initial chair of the uh, Canadian Critical Care Trials Group was a thoracic surgeon by the name of Tom Todd, who invited uh, a group of Canadian intensivists, there were about 10 or 12 of us uh, all together, to come together with the idea of exploring the possibility of uh, developing a Canadian group that could undertake collaborative multicenter research. So none of us had ever really done this before, and we really didn't know what it was all about, but we agreed it would be a good idea to try. Got together initially in the basement of a dingy hotel in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, but then in a wonderful uh, resort environment out in Western Canada uh, to discuss how we might go forward. And at that second meeting, we now had about two dozen people, all of whom had had some experience, but, but amongst us, I'm not sure there was a single individual who'd completed a randomized clinical trial. And so there's a lot of intensity, a lot of back and forth, a discussion that went on for perhaps two or three hours, uh, and at the end, the intensity had kind of reached the point almost of fisticuffs because people were fighting over uh, who would do what and how uh, they were going to get credit for it. Uh, Tom at the time had the wisdom to say, okay, so obviously interest here, but we've reached a roadblock. I want everybody to go out, uh, go canoeing on uh, Emerald Lake, which is where we're meeting, go hiking in the mountains, come back at 4 o'clock, and we will discuss whether or not this is a viable idea or not and uh, decide whether we just pack up and go home or whether we move forward. And so it turned out that during that four or five hours of canoeing and hiking, all of the tensions had dissipated, people came back together with an absolute commonality of purpose, and we launched our first clinical research program, which has subsequently evolved into a portfolio of, we now have about 60 or 70 active research programs. We've published more than 250 papers. We've published 18 papers in the Journal of Medicine, and we have really mentored virtually every Canadian intensivist. So there were some key messages there. One is you had to speak to the passion of those people who are doing research. That's where the ideas came from, and that's the work he wanted to do. But two, you had to recognize that it was a human activity and it hinged critically on the interactions between those people. So now at our meetings, we insist on having them in out-of-the-way locations and having time in the middle of the day where people can socialize, just get to know each other better, have a lot of fun. We have dancing and drinking at night. And it's there where the true collaborations and the best ideas uh, emerge. And so it's a model that... um, 
I think we're very proud of having taken the first steps to develop, but now has been replicated essentially in every continent in the world uh, and has been kind of, to me, the sort of paradigm for a new way of doing clinical research in contrast to that where either an industry-led trial where you've got a contract research organization or even the classical academic trial where it's being done through the hierarchy of a university. This was a different kind of model. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about the way you organized yourselves. So, for example, that mm-hmm. initial, well, not the initial, but the second mm-hmm. meeting at Emerald Lake, uh, Lake, it sounded like there were a lot of strong personalities. Yes, that, absolutely. That, that, that sounds yep, yep. Uh, very uh, usual yep. for the medical world. Right. Everybody must have thought they had the best way of going about things. So how did you all manage that? Do you have different jobs with different people? Do you have a master controller? How, how does all that So, so it's, it's a great question, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, there were people with intense personalities, but those are the people that kind of move things forward. Uh, what we decided to do was that we would discuss ideas. We would discuss proposals for studies. Uh, everybody could kind of have some input into it. We'd have, somebody would present a proposal for a study, and then there would just be a general kind of discussion about about that study, and we'd move it forward. There was a nominal structure. There was a chair, and we had a, uh, an executive committee and a scientific committee. But really, the critical element of success was sitting around in a room as a group of people discussing an idea. And maybe if I could just follow that through, I, if you don't mind, I, one example I like to, to use that I think underlines how important that was. Um, our first trial was a trial of stress ulcer prophylaxis. It was led by Deborah Cook, who at that time was just finishing her master's in clinical epidemiology after doing her critical care training. Our second trial was led by Paul Hebert, uh, who's currently the chair of the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. Paul was a, uh, undertaking a research fellowship with a group that was really interested in supernormal oxygen delivery and oxygen transport in critical illness. And he came to us at one of our meetings. He said, I've got a great idea. You know how we normally transfuse patients at a threshold of 10? My idea is why don't we transfuse them to 12 and see if by improving oxygen delivery by transfusion we can improve outcomes. And so we sat around and had the most amazing discussion that went on for probably two hours. Uh, And at the end of it, we realized that that was a good question, but there was a much more compelling, great question, and that was, where did this number of 10 come from, and could we get away with transfusing patients at a lower level? And so that was the genesis of the TRIC trial, and I think two things stand out with that. One is that Paul felt comfortable enough to have his idea rejected and recognized that it was being replaced with a better idea and it, he was going to be able to lead it. But the other thing was that there was a kind of sense, a culture in the room that was not critical, that was not, it was critical, but it was not uh, in any way kind of destructive, that said, okay, you've given us an idea, let's us turn this into something really good. And so we did a trial, which I think has really uh, been really quite transformational in uh, critical care. And it really set the tone and our meet at our meetings uh, our best the best times the discussions of protocols when we take somebody's idea and we just bat ideas back and forth about have you thought about doing this why you could change it this way and uh, uh, it, it really I think has, has been the key to the success of the work that we've done how did you socially engineer the situation to make it into such a egalitarian group 
And I'm, I, I guess I'm really curious about that. It almost sounds mm-hmm. like one of those textbook cases that you study in you know, leadership courses. Well, so, so first of all, we're Canadians. Okay? <laughs> and Canadians are nice. We, you know, we kind of take pride and are you know, slightly embarrassed about the fact that we do tend to get along with each other uh, and we don't tend to hold uh, lasting kind of grudges. So that was part of it. But the other part was that we were skiing with each other. And when you go out skiing with somebody or dance with somebody or, you know, drink a little bit too much whiskey with somebody, it's really hard to the next morning say to them, listen, you're full of crap. I don't like your ideas. I'm taking my cards and going home. Uh, so that we really did build an element of social trust in that. And, and again, we are quite adamant about the fact that we do not want to hold meetings in a hotel uh, where the people who are there are looking at their watches and thinking, gee, you know, if we're done in the next 45 minutes, I can get an earlier flight back home. We want to hold them in a place where you don't go home at night, you stay with everybody who's there, and you spend two or three or four really intense days sharing ideas and getting to know each other better. And out of that comes much better science. And it sounds like you've actually expanded this model of collaboration to international. Well, so, so, so we're Canadians and, and we're nice. The Australians are equally social, but they're wild. And they were the next group to really take up this model. Uh, And I think they have done it in spades. They uh, established the Australian uh, and New Zealand Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group back in 1994 and have done huge studies. They've done, you know, 7,000 patient studies. They've got over 10 papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, They involve the majority of ICUs in Australia and New Zealand. They've really been able to take that model and kind of expand it out further so that clinicians in Australia just understand that part of providing good clinical care is recruiting patients to trials group trials. What they've done, as we've done, uh, the things they focus on are the questions that clinicians ask. They're not, is this a new drug that might be a miracle drug to treat sepsis? They say, well, should I be using albumin or saline when I'm resuscitating a patient? Uh, what blood sugar level should I target? Uh, you know, questions that we all struggle with every day uh, in looking after patients. And, and so uh, the research portfolio that's come out of these groups has been very much a portfolio of comparative effectiveness research rather than uh, research into new, uh, new therapies. Got it. I was going to ask you, how, because obviously you were here as an advocate for this type of global collaborative research. And my question for you was, how is that different from, for example, a multi-center trial? And, and I think you've sort of answered that, but maybe well, you could... These are multi-center that. trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the trials that are done will involve, they're not, you know, not hundreds of centers at present time, although that's certainly something that I think we aspire to. But typically the trials will involve anywhere from, say, 10 to 50, 60 uh, centers. Uh, increasingly, we're collaborating internationally, and that's going to be the focus of uh, what I'm going to be speaking about at this uh, particular meeting. They differ from industry-run trials in that they're not trying to develop and and bring into existence a new drug, number one. Number two, the protocol is developed, honed, and owned by the investigators. Uh, Number three, the work is not being done through a contract research organization, but through some other academic body. So it may be a uh, university uh, research outfit. They also differ, I think, from uh, academic consortia that are university-based in that they 
are much more open to collaboration across institutions. So there's no particular need to have a large amount of overage that's going to be coming to one institution by itself. Uh, and I think there's, there's more, uh, it's a somewhat more diffuse kind of structure. But there are randomized clinical trials, and they're done uh, as rigorously or more rigorously than uh, most industry-run clinical trials, and on a substantially lower budget. Speak of money, how are these funded? Well, typically they're funded by uh, government granting agencies. So in Canada, we have the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. In Australia, there's the NHMRC. In the United Kingdom, uh, the uh, MRC, uh, the EU, has a number of different funding sources. There are private foundations that have funded the trials. They're funded typically at a relatively low value. So when we look at the large studies we've done, the Australians have done studies of six or 7,000 patients that have cost perhaps in the vicinity of 3 to $5 million. And that contrast with a comparable study run by industry would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So the reimbursement to sites is not good. Um, the reimbursement to the investigator is non-existent. Um, and there's a, a need for a lot of goodwill on the part of those who are actually recruiting patients to the trial, which again speaks to the model that we try to build at our meetings because a lot of the people who come to our meetings are there not because they're trying to develop their own research program, but rather because they're contributing patients to that. And so that's all sort of part of this community of people who are uh, generating clinical knowledge. Right. And as an advocate for this type of research, why should this be the way we are pursuing clinical research? Well, I think there are a number of reasons why this is a compelling model. I think, first of all, as, as, as critical care evolves, the questions become more complicated. We're, we often uh, design trials where we anticipate, for example, that we're going to see a 5% mortality reduction, and that doesn't seem all that much. But when you think about it, there's very little we do that is going to affect a 5% mortality reduction uh, in any disease process. And if our baseline mortality is 20%, you know, you can see that before trials, we've got all survivors, and the, uh, that's the end of clinical research. So it's not like that. We, we have to be thinking of uh, trials that are much larger uh, than we've done in the past. And when you're thinking of large trials, you're thinking of uh, collaboration. We learn from what we do, and we learn from the consequences of what we do, and so the questions are always changing. The uh, notion, for example, that resuscitation using early goal-directed therapy, brilliant idea as it was originally introduced, and some variation of that I think has been taken up by most of the critical care community. We now know that we don't have to do everything that that Manny Rivers originally outlined, and there are new questions that need to be asked. And so to ask those new questions, we need to be working together to figure out what those questions are and to have the power to be able to do that. I think the other key reason is that we can improve outcomes for patients. Increasingly in our studies, we're engaging patients. So one of the big moves, I think, with investigator-led clinical research is getting patients involved in the meetings and also in the actual design and running of clinical trials because we want to make sure that what we're studying is relevant uh, to patients. So the other other, uh, key issue here is that uh, in addition to having patient involvement in clinical trials, we're finding that the research we're doing is actually cost-effective. So uh, we published a study a couple of years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at two different approaches to DVT prophylaxis, and an economic analysis of that study showed that one approach that had 
a marginal benefit in reducing rates of pulmonary emboli translated into a saving of a million dollars per year per ICU if that approach was adopted. In Australia, the results of their safe study, saline versus albumin, it's been estimated that they've somewhere saved somewhere in the vicinity of $150 million a year by just using saline. So there's a tremendous incentive for clinicians and for funders to continuously ask questions because not only do we do things better, we do it more efficiently and therefore more cost-effectively. Sounds great. I also wanted to ask you more about the uh, global aspects of this. Um, I I think academic medicine has tended to be a very uh, American and European based endeavor. Mm. It sounds like uh, you are also trying to engage the rest of the world more in in these. Yeah, so what is extraordinarily exciting to me is the recognition that the kinds of things that we think about in Lake Louise, Canada, or in uh, Australia are questions that are relevant to everybody around the world and what we are doing, the approaches we are using, are approaches that are possible for people around the world. So um, after our group formed after ANZICS formed. There have been a number of other investigator-led groups around the world, the Irish Critical Care Trials Group, the Scottish Critical Care Trials Group, Scandinavian group that's published a couple of uh, major studies on uh, uh, transfusion and the use of uh, starches. Uh, there's a Spanish group. There's a number of French groups. Uh, but there are also groups outside of Europe, North America, and Australia. In Brazil, uh, BrickNet is a large, British, uh, large Brazilian research network which has just published a paper in JAMA on the use of a checklist. They're a dynamic group, and they're going to be uh, a powerhouse in years to come. In Latin America, 13 or 14 countries have gotten together to form Lactin, which is a network of Latin American uh, investigators. They're at the stage now of doing observational studies, but it won't be long before they're doing clinical trials. Uh, in uh, Asia, the Asian Critical Care Clinical Trials Group has done some observational studies and moving towards clinical trials. There's a network being set up in Southeast Asia, including Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal, India, uh, and Sri Lanka. Uh, There is a Chinese critical care trials group, which is uh, evolving uh, very rapidly. It's done some observational studies. Uh, And even in Africa, in North Africa, there's North African Research Network. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, there are eight different countries that have kind of come together. So we're really seeing the beginnings of a willingness and an appetite to collaborate internationally on doing research. And this is going to be potent. It will be efficient. It means we get things done more quickly. It will allow us to address problems of low- and middle-income countries that are not being addressed in research right now. Uh, you know, optimal resuscitation in India may be very different from optimal resuscitation in Honolulu, uh, for example. And it will, I think importantly, be yet another thing that brings people of the world together around the fact that what we share in our ideals is much more important than the things that drive us apart. And so I think that, uh, to me, it's extraordinarily important. In fact, there is a body of uh, about 30 different investigator-led clinical trials groups around the world uh, that uh, has come together as a forum to kind of promote communication amongst these uh, groups. And one of the key things that we're doing in INFACT has been to educate and mentor uh, emerging trials groups. So we've run a educational session in Pakistan. Uh, we've run, we've uh, met with uh, meetings of groups in Asia and in Latin America. And it's my hope that we'll be able to bring some of the experience of trials groups in more developed areas 
to places that are just really emerging but have the passion, the need, uh, the patient populations that uh, we can speed the process for them to become part of a global capacity to undertake uh, critical care research. Well, one of the things that sounds really exciting about this as well is the, the, the research questions themselves are slightly different, but I think one of the criticisms of the traditional ways of doing medical research is that it's utilized a very limited limited patient population to mm-hmm. make it mm-hmm. very um, homogenous. Right. And right. this is almost the exact opposite. And maybe this exactly. will be better. Exactly. And it may have some important implications. So uh, a couple of years ago, the FEAST trial, which looked at critically ill children in Kenya, asked the question, you know, if, if resuscitation is good for you in North America, surely it should be good for you uh, in uh, East Africa, uh, and resuscitated uh, children, primarily children with malaria, and showed that, in fact, it wasn't those children did worse and their mortality rate was higher, which was initially very disturbing, I think, to the investigator for that. And it spoke to two things. Number one is when children go into respiratory failure, they don't have ventilators. But number two, maybe what we're doing is not right. And so based on the findings of the FEAST trial, the Scandinavian Critical Care Trials Group has just done a pilot study looking at a more restrictive mode of resuscitation, allowing the blood pressure to stay lower, and has some fairly intriguing evidence that it's at least equivalent and maybe superior to what we do right now. So there is an awful lot to be learned by understanding how we do things differently and what the information is in the fact that we are doing things uh, differently. It doesn't always come out on the side of more is better. Typically, it comes out on the side of less is better. And that may also mean that what is being done elsewhere uh, may be superior to what we're doing here. You uttered the uh, phrase, in fact. Yeah. So I think we uh, should ask you to tell us more about in sure. In fact, stands for the International Forum for Acute Care Trialists. It is a collaboration, a network of networks uh, amongst investigator-led critical care groups, uh, critical care trials groups, and a few university-based or uh, government-based uh, bodies. There are about thirty member groups uh, altogether. We had our genesis in 2008 at a meeting in Granada, Spain, where we got together with the idea, somewhat unformed idea, that there was real value in having an opportunity for dialogue amongst these groups, but also very sensitive to the fact that the groups are autonomous and we're not trying to take over what they do in doing research, but that by addressing common needs, we can do that better. So um, our first uh, real collective action was in 2009 at the time of the uh, H1N1 pandemic, uh, where we were able to coordinate some observational studies and, in fact, launch three randomized clinical trials that were recruited small numbers of patients because by the time we got the trials going, uh, the pandemic had passed. But we did show that we could collaborate globally uh, in the face of a need. And so our other activities, we have an outcome measures working group that is looking at developing core outcome measure sets, developing better ways of thinking about outcomes, looking at the outcomes we use and understanding how they they, uh, function, and likely developing novel outcome measures. We have uh, a group that's looking at global epidemiology 
including a group that's thinking about how do you actually measure the denominator in studies where you're trying to describe global epidemiology. We're trying to map, uh, David Wallace in Pittsburgh is, has a program trying to map global capacity for the provision of acute care around the world. And in doing that, we can set up the infrastructure to do really large observational studies. So we have got funding now for a study looking at trying to set up a surveillance network for antimicrobial resistance using the ICU, and perhaps with a particular focus on the ICU environment as a reservoir of antimicrobial resistance. And we're trying to get funding for a study that would look particularly at the role of the ICU environment in Acinetobacter infections, a very common infection in intensive care units in low- and middle-income countries, and likely related to the hospital environment, drains the hospital water supply, uh, some of those infection control measures. Um, We have our work in education and mentoring uh, that I'd mentioned previously. We had a meeting last year, and this talk I'm giving tomorrow is in part based on that, uh, addressing the issue of global collaboration, what needs to be done to uh, facilitate it, how do we speak to funders about changing the ways they think about it, how do we change designs of clinical trials to come up with better designs to enable collaboration. And so along those lines, the the concept of doing platform trials, which is a trial where you study multiple things at the same time, uh, has has really gained traction. Derek Angus spoke about this in a plenary lecture at SCCM uh, last year, but it's a model that we're very keen to develop. And one of the beautiful things about that is as that happens, we begin to see a closer convergence of clinical research being undertaken by clinicians, quality improvement being undertaken by clinicians, and uh, cost-effectiveness, and that those things all kind of come together. And so I think where we're ultimately seeing the, the research agenda moving is towards integrating research so wholly into clinical practice that we don't sort of think about it as something external and effete but as something that's a fundamental core part of what we do as clinicians. And in doing that, we change the funding of it. So we don't go to granting agencies saying we need $10 million, and they say, look, you've got all these ideas. We don't have that much money. We say to the funders of healthcare, we are making your care better. We are making it more cost-effective. You have to support us. And I think it becomes a, a very compelling argument for how we move together a learning healthcare system in the future. Do you see any pitfalls to this type of collaborative research? There are an enormous number of pitfalls, and I think one has to be very conscious of the fact that there are collaboration is is, is complicated. As I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, you can inadvertently uh, generate ill will as well as consciously generate goodwill, uh, and that's certainly something that needs to be uh, guarded against. I think we have we have tried to avoid. Uh, any kind of a top-down approach and try to almost eschew the concept of leadership in favor of collaboration. And I think there's some enormous pitfalls in that because I think in a certain sense, uh, when you do that, when you don't have a, a clear leadership structure, you may actually have an implicit leadership structure which is even more restrictive than uh, a democratic structure would be. So we're really struggling with how you go forward on this. It's interesting to me that we are in critical care at the first group that is really doing this, developing a network of networks. I met with some investigators from the stroke field a couple of months ago who were thinking of the same idea, bringing together stroke networks from around the world. 
to come up with a similar kind of network of networks of people who do stroke research. So it's exciting when you look at it from a broader perspective of the future of medicine, the idea that this is a concept that is kind of taking hold in different specialties, and we could ultimately integrate it with the entirety of medical practice and not simply that little part of it that we occupy uh, as intensivists. Right. Just to follow up on you know the, 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 the various details that worry you, uh, what, what are some of the barriers that you're encountering right now and what are some of the needs that um, you have to to keep these projects going forward? So I think the most important thing about making this successful is that people have to be able to get together and meet with people. And that's complicated when you are a global body. It's even complicated to have a a teleconference or a video conference because somebody is going to be up at 5 o'clock in the morning and somebody's going to be up at 1 o'clock in the morning uh, if you're around the world. So um, working out models where we can bring people together for that kind of creative protected time uh, to develop ideas is, is really critical. Having funding, we don't need a lot of money, but having funding to, for example, have an executive director, to have uh, some support in communications is really critical. Right now, we're completely unfunded, uh, and so uh, what happens really happens based on the goodwill of a very, very small number of people who are uh, trying to move things forward. And it's just not a sustainable model because it looks like you've got a clique of people who are doing the stuff and everybody else is excluded. And the only way you really bring people together is by providing the opportunity to do so. So we've got a lot of thinking. We're we're actually uh, starting to engage in a strategic thinking process to figure out how do we address uh, some of these needs. We'd like to, for example, be able to provide some uh, seed money to support early phase research. I mean, I think that would be good. Should we try to set up a foundation? That's another concept. How do we fund educational programs for not only uh, doctors but research coordinators, other people who are doing uh, research, and particularly in emerging groups. Can we set up fellowship programs so that people can come and spend some time working with a Deborah Cook or a Derek Angus or a Jalali Anan uh, to really learn the ins and outs of uh, clinical research? So a lot of things like that that we need to give some thought to, and the avenues to do so are not really uh, entirely clear right now because we're not, you know, we're not strategically aligned with people who have money. At least we're not strategically aligned with people who are going to make money out of what we do. And that does create some, some challenges. So it, it sounds like you're in the growth phase and you're trying to we are indeed. figure yeah. their part out. Yeah. Well, maybe I could get you to um, sort of summarize what we've been talking about and um, give the audience your, your um, take-home key thoughts about this. Okay, I, I think... If you look at it from a height, one of the things that's apparent is that just as clinical practice changes, research changes, our expectations of what we do and the outcomes we get from that is something that's constantly in a state of flux. And it's apparent to me over the past 30 years or so that there is uh, a slow but inexorable movement in uh, research in the best research that's coming out of critical care that is uh, showing that we're heading towards a model where we no longer think about having people provide clinical medicine on the one hand and then uh, look at it and figure out what can they do better and apply guidelines to it on the other hand and study it to come up with information to 
uh, inform those guidelines. On the third hand, these things, the boundaries between these different areas are beginning to blur. Our focus is the patient, and I think it's really important that the patient has real significant input into each of those steps. But what I see happening is a model where clinicians looking after patients are asking questions and therefore studying them through clinician-run, investigator-led trials groups, where that information uh, may be coming back into a guideline, but there may be an even better model for that, and that is the use of a platform trial structure, so that rather than saying uh, we don't know the best way to do such and such, but we're going to, our guidelines are going to be that you target a blood pressure of X, you're going to say, we don't know this, why don't we test it? Do a platform trial which will Uh, move our practice towards the arm that is doing better. And that would be an ongoing iterative kind of process where rather than thinking about guidelines, we thought about questions, and the questions got fed into an ongoing clinical trial informed by clinicians, uh, embraced by patients, that generated the answers to those questions. So the guidelines were constantly changing. Because I think one of the things that's clear is that what worked for critically ill patients 20 years ago is probably different from what works for them now. You know, the trials group, one of our our very first uh, clinical trial was a 1,200-patient trial of stress ulcer prophylaxis that was led by Deborah Cook. Uh, And it showed that um, basically H2 blockers were superior to sucrophate in preventing stress ulceration. We are now uh, launching a trial uh, that is asking the question, in uh, the 21st century, do we actually have to give stress ulcer prophylaxis, or are we causing more harm by inducing ventilator-associated pneumonia and clostridium difficile? So if you guidelines say, you know, use a proton pump inhibitor or use a, an H2 blocker, but if we do that, we may be exposing patients to harm as our specialty involves. And so I think to have a dynamic guideline that was informed by research means that the practice of uh, continuous quality improvement really does improve quality continuously because it ties it to the clinical problem and to a set of skills that can answer that uh, problem. And so, in my view, we're moving into an era where clinical research is a core competency for uh, clinicians. Not that they have to understand the nuances of Bayesian adaptive designs or Cox proportional hazard analysis, but they have to understand the nuts and bolts of why you do research, why you randomize, why you don't know, why you don't generate the truth, you just generate probabilities, and how you interpret that information and how you use that information. Uh, Because it is part of, it is one of the most powerful tools we have for improving care. Well, and I think this philosophy of global cooperation, collaboration, and collective learning, Mm -hmm. being uh, patient-focused, I think those are very inspiring ideals. Well, on that note, I think uh, this concludes another edition of the I Critical Care podcast. I thank you, Dr. Marshall, for being able to speak on all that. And for the I Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. 
Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.